Hey Jude, guarantee it, we'll have a group for that. All right, if you uh, have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 John, and I'm so glad to be over the throat mess. I guess I did give it to Kathy. How many of you know somebody fighting it? Anybody? Yeah, it's around, but Jesus is the healer, and um, amen. All right. Let's look at 1 John tonight, and <clears throat> we're in 1 John 3.16, and I've got it typed out for us as usual so that uh, I want you to see it. I won't always have transparencies like this up here, but I want you to see what we're teaching. So let's just stand to read the first verse, and we're going to pray together and ask God to speak to us out of His Word. 1 John 3.16. Let's, let's just go ahead and read it. Ready? By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Father, we just thank you for the word of God, that it speaks to our hearts and that it builds us up in the faith. And we pray, Lord, minister your word to us now. Now, will you just breathe a prayer and say, Lord, speak to me tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. I've loved 1 John. I've gotten to where I'm just reading it every single day. You know my habit. I do five psalms and a proverb and then some chapter out of the New Testament. Uh, and if you don't know where to go, you just do that. And that's, that settles the issue for you. But I've just been in 1 John. I love 1 John because it's simple, it's clear, it's concise. And it tells us the way things ought to be. You know, the more I read 1 John, it really comes down to three things. It comes down to, if you're really a child of God, you will obey Him. If you're really a child of God, you will love one another. Amen? If you're really a child of God, those two things, really not three, two major things stick out in John more than any single thing to me. You will obey him and you will love one another and he just repeats it and repeats it and repeats it so that really in five chapters you, you got John just repeating himself over and over again my little children he who says he knows him will obey him and he who says he knows him will walk like he walked he who says he knows him will love the brethren and so you're thinking I'm on a Beatles theme because of what I called this tonight. All you need is love, and then next time, hey Jude, you got me. <clears throat> but let's go ahead and look at this tonight because he, here he goes again. He's saying, here's how you know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now I want to ask you a question as we get into this. How often do you see church people laying down their lives one for another? Their lives. See, as I read John, I told you at the very beginning, he punches you in the gut with a velvet glove. My little children, my little born ones, if you really love one another, you'll die for each other. But now I have it up here so you can look at it and see that this is not the revised, slanted, wickwire version. This is what it says. So as we read these, let me ask you a million-dollar question. 
Where is this in the body of Christ? Now, people ask me this question. They say, Pastor Jeff, why in the world is the church seemingly so lukewarm and so out there and, and so carnal and living like the world? What's the problem? Well, there's an old saying that if there's a mist in the pulpit, there's a fog in the pews. If we're not being taught what it really says, we don't know what to walk in. We don't know what to walk in. And I've got to be honest with you at church. When I listen to a lot of preaching and teaching that's out there right now, it's, it's cotton candy, Christianity light, uh, candy apple, good times, rock and roll, no muss, no fuss, no pain, no nothing Christianity. I don't hear this. But now let's just let, because this isn't John talking to us. This is God the Holy Ghost talking to us through John. All Scripture is given by inspiration of who? God. So, the word know is in the perfect tense, and here's what it means. Knowledge gained by experience. So we could read that first part and just say, by this we have gained knowledge by experience. We've gained this knowledge by experience. We know that He laid down His life for us. All right? The saints have experienced the love of God in that He laid down His life for them. Life is the Greek word psuche. We get psycho from that. Psuche. And it's the Greek word for soul. Now I want you to notice what it's telling us about Jesus. When John, was, he, John says, He laid down His soul for us. Christ's death on the cross involved not only His physical death, but abandonment from God because of human sin laid on him. It was this reality that caused him to cry out, say it with me everybody, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What was happening right there on the cross? Not only was he dying physically, but his soul for a brief season was cut off from God. So John wasn't, wasn't, messing up with words here he said hey guess what we know he gave his physical life but i'm telling you in verse one he gave his soul as well laid it down therefore says john we should likewise lay down our lives and the same word is used souls for the brethren what does that mean the ego must be crucified self must be denied for the benefit of the brethren we are to walk in agape love toward one another. And that means as he laid down his soul for us, we are called to lay down our souls for the brethren. Our ego tripping, our selfishness, our me, myself, and I-ism, our narcissism, our self-obsession. We are to lay down our souls crucify our own desires so that we can serve one another how many of you have ever noticed in marriage that there is no way a marriage is going to work unless you lay down your soul now think a minute because look as long as you hang on to your ego all you're going to have is two people that don't get along in the same house if you're going to make it work 
then you've got to lay down not just your time and, and your effort, you've got to lay down your soul. And I contend if you can't learn to do it at home, you're never going to learn to do it in the church. Marriage is summer school. Marriage is how you become Christ-like at warp speed. Because you learn real quick, if I don't lay down my soul, she doesn't lay down her soul, then all we're going to do is clash. And, and the whole reason you clash most of the time is two egos are refusing to give in. Didn't mean to get in that. I'm thinking about a series on Sunday morning called Desperate House Holds. All right, here we go. <laughs> so, now, so how many of you are with me now on this? You lay down your soul, your ego, your selfishness. Now, John says that's what we're to do with one another. Now, verse 17, let's read it together. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? my little children I can just hear him coming here he comes floats like a butterfly stings like a bee now when he says goods he who sees he who has this world's goods and sees his brother in need the word goods is the Greek word bios meaning the, the necessities or the necessaries of life now the word has refers to the person who is in constant habitual possession of this world's goods. So if you were reading it in the, in the Greek language, here's how this would read. The person who is, who is set nicely, who's got a good income, has all of his needs met habitually, continually, he's doing well. That person is who I'm talking about. The one who's got a job, has a trade, has a skill, is making decent money. This is the person I'm talking to. And he says... When that person sees a brother in need, notice the word see here. I'm on the other side and it's messing me up. Here we go. Sees is from the Greek word meaning to continually look with interest and purpose to deliberately contemplate. To deliberately contemplate. This is not speaking of a hasty glance, but one who sees a Christian in need over a protracted period of time. This is somebody, all right, I've got a good job, decent income. Uh, I've got a house. I've got my needs met. I'm not wondering where the, the, the next dollar is going to come from to pay bills that have, I have not been able to pay. I'm doing all right. And I see on a constant basis, I'm looking at somebody, a Christian in the body of Christ who is in need. I don't just happen to notice them one Sunday and move on, but I'm seeing them over and over again. I'm confronted with it over and over again. That's what he's saying. He says, if you, if that person shuts up his heart, shuts up can be used of the slamming of a door or the snapping of a lock. I see that person in need in my heart like a door shuts. And I lock it. I say, huh? tough luck, should have gone to school. Go get a job. And I think people should get a job. 
His point is this, there's no compassion in this person. There's no compassion in this person. There's no heart, there's no mercy, there's no feeling. They, they, They shut the door of their heart rather than letting the drawbridge down. That's what they do. That's what he's saying. This person, John's talking about, has slammed the door of his heart shut to the needs of a fellow Christian with no thought of mercy. And he says, how is it possible that in you dwells the love of God? Now, y'all, I'm going to tell you, I know this. I know that there are a lot of churches I could teach this in where, for instance, on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in the United States of America in their church. I have had African-American people and Hispanic people come to me and say, I went and visited this church and that church, and I knew when I went in there I was not welcome. I knew I was not. Well, they may have a club with membership, but they don't have a New Testament church. You don't have a New Testament church. Because you can, you can stick a black man, a Hispanic man, a white man, a red man, a yellow man with a needle, and everybody bleeds red. And Jesus died for the whole world. But here's the deal. If, if something like prejudice causes that door to slam shut, He says, how does the love of God dwell in you? He said, and and it's a rhetorical question. He's saying, it's not possible that in you is dwelling the love of God. It's not there. You see how I couldn't teach this in some places? Because they would look at you like, well, you know, know, we're, we're a club. We got membership. It's we four and no more. And and if you're going to be a, a member of this club, you've got to be like one of us. And it's not, you've got to be like Jesus, you've got to be like one of us. And that's the Pharisee mentality. The Pharisee mentality says, we've got it, now you come and get it. The Jesus mentality says, we've got it and we're bringing it to you. And, and Jesus touched every race, color, and creed. He, he didn't care about skin. Or, or take it to another level, somebody who just hasn't been able to make enough money to pay the bills. And you see that, and you close the door of your heart. He says, where is the love of God? He said, I "I don't see how it's possible that you've got the love of God in you. And I understand that you've got to use wisdom in helping people, and, and, and the best thing you can do for somebody is instead of giving them a fish, teach them how to fish. I understand that. But there, there ought to be an open door of compassion the, the heart of a church ought to be open with wisdom. Amen? With wisdom. But it needs to be open. Well, praise God, Pastor Jeff, this is good teaching. I'm going to get this tape. This needs to be on radio. Amen. Praise God. Preach it. Now, God is saying, here's what God is saying. Love ought to be practical. The difficulty of Christian love lies in doing the little things, facing day by day, the petty sacrifices and self-denials that no one notices and no one applauds. That's where Christian love is difficult. Amen? That's where it's difficult. Where you got to just take a stand and say, you know what? Nobody's ever going to know it. And I've told you that agape love is when you help somebody who cannot do anything in return. That's agape love. Nobody knows it but you and Jesus 
Now, let's read verse 19 together and 20. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. Do you notice that almost in every verse he says, this we know. You know what? Christianity is a no-so faith. It's not an arrogant faith, but it is a faith where you know. He says over and over here, we know that we are of God. We know we have been born of him. We know he is our father. We know we're walking in love. We know that we're going to heaven. We know we've been saved. We know we've been, no, 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 no. Not we hope so, maybe so, perhaps so, but we know. And here he is again, by this we know that we're of the truth. Now here's what I think is happening in these verses. John is anticipating that the last verse that I just talked to you about is going to lead us into feeling condemned. Because how many of you can admit with, with me and confess with me, there's no way I love the way I ought to love? No way. I know I don't, do you? I mean, how many of you can admit with me we're selfish by nature? All seek their own. Now here's what John's anticipating, that in that verse before where he said, look, uh, how, how can you look at needs and, and walk with such a lack of love? He's anticipating that that's going to make us feel condemned. As I was talking about it, how many of you felt a little twinge of condemnation? I did. Because I have walked by all kinds of needs and not met them. Thought about it later instead of at the time. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, you're going to fall into self-condemnation, possibly as we've talked about these things. Say this kind of thing to yourself. I fall so short in the love department. I fall so short. John says, if your heart begins to condemn you for not rising to the standard you think you should, you need to know how to assure your heart with the knowledge that God is greater than your heart that is condemning itself. You know, y'all, I don't know uh, about you, but I'll be harder on myself than 10 men would. I'll hook myself up to the whipping post and I'll whip myself for big things, small things. It doesn't matter. I'll, I'll, I'll really be hard on myself. Is anybody in here like that? I mean, just you make one little mistake and the devil takes it and runs you for an hour over it. Ruins your day over it. You dirty scoundrel, you this and that and the other. How could you this and that? And why weren't you more like Jesus? And you're so fleshly. And what are you doing going to church? And what are you doing thinking God's going to hear you when you pray? Yada, yada, yada. So since we have an inclination to condemn ourselves, here's what John is saying. He's saying, don't let what I just shared with you condemn you. Don't let it condemn you. Here's what you've got to learn to do. Learn that God is greater than your heart and has provided for your forgiveness and cleansing. I love the word for assure. Way up at the top again, he says, and we shall assure our hearts before him. Church, who does the assuring? We assure our own hearts before him. We have to learn how to deal with condemnation. You know how many people are not going to be in church this Sunday because they're all condemned, sitting at home, 
and the devil hops on their shoulder as soon as they wake up when they decide to come to church and says to them, who are you to go to church? Look the way you acted this week. You hypocrite. Why would you go and just be a hypocrite with all those other hypocrites? Just stay home and watch somebody on TV and just, just tell the truth about yourself. Let me tell you something, church. We've got to learn how to minister to ourselves. We've got to learn how to assure our hearts before God so that we don't live in condemnation. The word assure means to persuade or literally to tranquilize. To tranquilize. Literally, we can soothe the alarm of our heart by remembering and applying the power of His blood. Amen. You can either live in condemnation or you can live in forgiveness. You can have peace or you can be against yourself all the time. I would never put Christianity on somebody who didn't understand the power of the blood because it'll kill you. But now watch this. Let's remember the difference between positional and experiential truth. Now here's where we are positionally. We could say here's how we are theologically. This is what the Bible tells us about us. Here's what it says. Positionally, we are seated in heavenly places in Christ right now. That's what the Bible says. You are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's where we are but you're in your chair. But as far as God's concerned, you're there, seated with Christ in heavenly places. And in God's eyes, we are what? Say it with me. Sinless. And yet today, all of us on one level or another sinned. Did you say something you shouldn't have? Think something you shouldn't have? Do something you shouldn't have? Harbor an attitude you shouldn't have? Anybody in here? The rest of you, you're lying right now. So you've sinned in church. But now, positionally, as far as God is concerned, we are, folks, sinless. When He looks at us, He does not see what we see. He has self-imposed blindness. He has on sunglasses. S-O-N. When you got saved, God never looked at you the same again. When you said, I received Jesus into my heart, he put on sunglasses. Now all he sees you through is the blood. To God, you are sinless. You're perfected. You're in heaven. It's over with. God knows the end from the beginning. We still need to arrive. But in God's mind, we've already arrived. And then we're also, what? Faultless. And what else? Spotless in the eyes of God. But now let me ask you this. How many of you felt that way today? How many of you felt that way today? How many of you felt the opposite of this right here? Do you see how experientially our experience tells us that what God says about us is not true, but it's more true than our experience. So that's positional truth. Experiential truth is we are living where? On earth. And we are what? Imperfect and flawed. And in the process of 
that's restoration and transformation, ever becoming more like him. So as far as God is concerned, we are as perfected as Christ, but experientially we're working out our own salvation with fear and trembling on earth in time and space. Amen? Now here's where the trick comes in. Whenever we fall short experientially, like many of you did today in rush hour traffic, you fell short experientially. Um, I did on the way to church. We almost ran in the back of somebody and I fell short experientially. I didn't say praise God. But you've been preaching on praise. Hey, my brain forgets theology sometimes. And I have to remind myself. I know what you're thinking. She was driving. And she was talking to me. And leave it to her. She said, I said, we're driving along. And I see this, all of a sudden, these taillights in front of me. I said, Kathy! She hits the brakes. And I said, what are you doing? She said, I was looking at you. You're so cute. And I said, man, that's a chicken way out. Uh, what can I say to that? What can I say to that? That's a wise woman. All right. So that ended the whole controversy right there. Oh, okay. Well, I understand. You know, go ahead. Wreck. I don't care. All right. But whenever we fall short experientially, here's what you've got to learn to do as a believer, or you're going to walk around in condemnation all the time. John says, we've learned to assure our hearts before him. We've learned to tranquilize our hearts before him, to soothe the fiery arrows of condemnation, to get them out. And, and we've learned by remembering the power of the blood that cleanses us from all sin. And he said, listen, even though your heart's condemning you, there is one who is greater than your heart, and he has unconditionally loved you. And because he has unconditionally loved you, then he's bigger than the condemnation your heart is whipping you with. So you learn to assure your heart before him every time you fall short. You receive God's forgiveness and you continue in the growth process. When our heart condemns us, we should quiet it with the assurance that we are in the hands of a God who is greater than our heart, who surpasses man in love and compassion, no less than in knowledge. John said that's how you handle it. When you look at who you are in Christ and then you look at the way you are experientially and they don't add up and you condemn yourself for not living up, you assure your heart before him. Amen. Now look what he says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Why, everybody? Because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. That's powerful. Now, I've got to tell you what I'm seeing in John. We do stand by grace. We've been saved by grace through faith. But folks, John is never going to let us get away from this reality. If you're saved, you will 
to the best of your ability, as you learn to walk with God, you will walk in the light that God has given you. And as you walk in the light that God has given you in obedience, your conscience is clear. And when your conscience is clear, you have boldness before God in prayer. He's, he's saying you can't disconnect a believer from obedience. Because you'll want to obey Him. Even though you're tempted to sin sometimes. That's only that depraved nature that you're going to deal with until you go to heaven. But there's a whole new man in you who wants to please God. And that's the earmark of somebody saved. So he says, he's, the phrase when he says, if our heart does not condemn us, is not speaking of sinless perfection, but of the child of God who, as best he or she knows, has no unconfessed sin in their life. If your heart's not condemning you, have you ever noticed that you can mess up? You can say something you shouldn't, do something you shouldn't, and until you make it right, you're walking around with a heart that is sitting on a witness seat. And it's talking to you. And that heart is saying to you, you're not right with God. You've got to get clear. I heard Jack Hayford the other day. I appreciate Jack's transparency. He said when he was a little boy, he walked into a store. And he said, hey, I saw my favorite candy. And he said, I looked around, and there was nobody watching. So as a little guy, about six, seven years old, I reached out and I grabbed my favorite candy and stuck it in my pocket and walked out. He said it was two cents. He said, do you know, I had been invited to speak to a men's conference, and this is recent, I had been invited to speak to a men's conference, and I was in prayer trying to get a word, and I couldn't get a word. I said, Lord, what is wrong? He said, do you know that God took me back to my childhood, to that piece of candy, and said, you've never repented for that, and you've never made things right. And he said, so I got out my calculator, and I figured compound interest. <laughs> and he said, I figured no way it could go over a quarter so I remembered where the store was, and I got a quarter, and I put it in an envelope, and I wrote a little note and said, when I was a boy, I stole a piece of candy. And he said, here's my quarter. I'm sure interest didn't take it further than this. He said, you know, it's the funniest thing. Just that. And all of a sudden, there was something unhinged and released inside my spirit. Now, I don't think we need to get neurotic about, because you know, there might be some of us sending back a whole lot of, you know, to pieces of candy and gum all over the place. But here's my point. If your heart does condemn you, you know, if, if you come before God and you begin to worship, and there's something clogging the pipes, and you go, what is wrong, God? And he says, now here's what the Holy Ghost will do. He will lead you and guide you into all truth. This is, is what you're feeling. Get this right. Get it right. And, and when you do, then, see, you don't have any unconfessed sin between you and Jesus. 
And that's the person he's talking about who says, if our heart condemns us not. If our heart condemns us not. I was watching 60 Minutes. I think it was 60 Minutes this week. I forget. One of those Dateline dealies or whatever. And here was this woman who had successfully robbed a bank or something and she had gotten away for years and years and years and never would have been found. She never would have been discovered. And yet, she finally, on her own volition, contacted a Dateline reporter, met this reporter privately and said, I'm turning myself in. And he said, but you had it made. You were gone. Nobody knew where you were. Nobody was even looking much anymore. This is years and years. Why have you done this? She said, I'm tired of running. And he said, but you weren't running. And she said, in here I was. In here. That's the heart that condemns you. So thank God for the blood that we have a place to go, an altar where the blood of Jesus is. And when you come to that altar and confess, then the running stops. Amen. And so <clears throat> he says, look what happens if your heart doesn't condemn, condemn you. We have what, everybody? Confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, whatever we ask, following what? Following getting our hearts right with God. Then whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we what? Keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. Now look at the word confidence. It's from the Greek word meaning freedom in speaking, free and fearless confidence, cheerful courage, boldness, and assurance. Here's what he's saying. Remember the, the Hebrews verse that says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find the grace to help us in the hour of need. The only way you will ever come to God's throne of grace boldly is if you are forgiven and your heart is no longer condemned. Then you come boldly to the throne of grace and He answers you. Praise God. Now, I think the word toward there is cool because it's really the Greek word P-R-O-S and it means facing. We have confidence when we're facing God. If our heart is cleansed and we're forgiven, we've got confidence when we turn and face the Father and say, Father, here's what I'm praying for. I'm asking you for this. He says, when you're facing Almighty God, you have confidence, fearlessness, courage. Ask is in the verb tense, meaning whatever we keep on asking for. Speaking of continuous and repeated praying day after day. So the requirements for answered prayer, let's read them together, are an uncondemning heart, the habitual keeping of God's commandments, and the habitual doing of those things that please Him. That's the key to answer prayer. If you're not forgiven, God doesn't even want you to pray for other things. He wants you to get it right. Then ask for other things. Verse 23, let's read it together. And this is His commandment, that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave us commandment. Now here, John is giving us the wide lens, the panoramic view of the Christian life. 
It's sort of the whole scope. Here's the way the Christian life should be postured. He says the whole focus of the believer should be on Christ, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He says, he says, on the name. We should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. How many of you believe on the name Jesus Christ? Remember when I preached on that at Christmas time? We should believe on the name. What's he saying there? The word name stands for all that the Son of God is in His person. All that the Bible states is true of Jesus Christ and a heart submission to Him personally. So he says, here's the sum total of the Christian life. That we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, that He is our Savior, He is our Deliverer, He is our Healer, He is our Provider, He is the Alpha, He is the Omega. He is the one who's going to return someday and take us to glory. He is our Shepherd. He's the Bread of Life. Everything the Bible says He is. John said, this is the sum total of the Christian life. You should believe on, rest in, be focused on everything the Bible says of Jesus Christ. Believe on that name. And then he adds, and love one another, and love one another, my little born ones, as he gave us commandment, love one another. Love is the divine, supernatural, agape love of God toward one another. Jesus said that the greatest commandment was what did he say do you remember it you shall love the lord your god with all your heart soul mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself i was reading this today getting ready i said man we're supposed to be lovers everything we're commanded to do is love when it's vertical that way love when it's this way love we're supposed to be lovers then why are we fighters and dividers and filled so often with venom and vitriol and bad feelings towards one another because we don't understand what the Bible has told us to live. Man, we're supposed to be lovers. Lovers. Verse 24, let's read it together. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And by this we know that He abides in us, by the Spirit whom He has given us. How do you know God's abiding in you? Because the Holy Ghost came into your heart. Do you remember that day? And you looked up and you said, Daddy! Daddy! He who obeys the Lord will also abide continually in Him. Do you notice that? He who keeps His commandments is the one who's going to abide in Him. One commentator wrote, Therefore let God be a home to you, and you be the home of God. Let God be a home to you. You reckon Simon Peter had done that? God was so at home in him, if he just walked down the street, his shadow healed people. Because the Father had so nested in him and rested in him. The key, church, is obedience. You get up in the morning, you say, I'm, I'm a Christian. What does that mean? It means I obey His Word. And if I obey His Word, I'll abide in Him. And He will abide with me. 
if I wake up and say, I'm a Christian, then I should say, I'm supposed to be a lover. I'm supposed to love this way, and I'm supposed to love this way. And if I'm not loving this way, John's going to really stick us next time by telling us, if you don't love this way, who you can see, how can you say you love somebody you can't even see? My little children. All right, Paul wrote to the Ephesians, we're closing. Be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man that the Christ might finally settle down and feel completely at home in your heart. In Romans eight sixteen, we are told that it is the spirit of God that bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Amen. Next week, how to test whether something is of God. Can we stand together? Thank you, Lord. Well, how many of you are glad you came to church tonight? All right. Father, we just pray. We feel like the Word has touched us tonight. Lord, we're supposed to be lovers and we're supposed to be obeyers. Lord, we fail often at that. But we thank you that when we fail, the blood of Jesus cleanses us. And we're growing, working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now, Lord, this week, help us to remember that we're to be worshipers of you, lovers of you, and lovers of one another. In Jesus' name. Can you breathe a prayer and just say, Lord, help me to do this. I can't do this in my own strength. Can't do it.